You may be seated. Church, today we're going to be in the end of Matthew 22, beginning in verse 41 and going through the end of the chapter there in verse 46. And I want you to realize that this text at first glance, when you first read this, you, you think, oh, that's just Jesus smashing or laying the smack down on the Pharisees so that he shuts them up, ends the debate, and sets them up for failure. He does that. He's pretty talented at laying the smack down on the Pharisees and the Sadducees and dropping mic on everybody who is listening and willing to hear. But this text is much more than that. And as I've had the privilege of studying it over the last weeks, it's been amazing what God has opened my eyes to and some of the connections that are here and what Jesus is doing, what he's saying. And I pray that a little bit of that comes out to you today as we open this word. But today we stand in a time when men and women continue to abuse the word of God, misrepresent the word of God for their own advancement, for their own priorities, for their own ill-gotten gain, to defend themselves against things that are undefendable. And you know, we've been very vocal from this pulpit about other denominations and those who have failed to hold adequately to the word of God. But today in the Southern Baptist Convention, we are going through areas of turmoil. That's the convention that we are a part of. It's a convention that taught me what I know about the Word of God. That over time I've grown to love and appreciate its leaders and its heroes. Many who are still standing and many who have let us down. But I can't say with all integrity that right now, Anything, the things that are happening inside the SBC are short of ungodly and shameful. And my prayer for us is that we will turn from our wicked ways and return to the path of God that he has laid out in his word and come to a proper understanding of his word and allow that to influence everything that we do. Because I don't want to stand here and call out one individual and not acknowledge the faults and failures amongst those in our own little circle. And it's abundant at the moment. But this text brings us back to the heart of the biblical understanding and connection of what's going on with Jesus and his relationship to the Father, and his relationship to man, and his understanding of who he is, and brings to light the question that ultimately we must answer, who is Jesus to you? You see, this text does not stand alone, nor does any other text of Scripture. 
This text comes at the end of a number of things that have gone on. Just going back a short time in the the chronology of the text. In chapter 21, we see Jesus coming in to the triumphal entry, riding in on the donkey to the praise of men and women and children alike. No matter what Jesse Duplantis says, Jesus didn't want, need, or will ever have a jet, much less four of them. And my prayer for men and women like Jesse is Psalm 83. Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem just as he should have come into the city of Jerusalem because that was ordained by the word of God. And he knew the word of God as we should know the word of God. And so he comes into the city and he's not even in the city before the Pharisees are confronting him about what is being proclaimed about him. And we're going to get to that because it's important in our text today. And then we see him as he curses the fig tree. And then as he comes back into the city, the authority of Jesus to cleanse the temple is questioned And in that question, he responds with a couple of parables that really make abundantly clear, number one, who Jesus is himself and the fact that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the ones that he's been talking about all along. You see, from the beginning of the Gospels, it's been abundantly clear who the enemies of God are in these passages. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees stand in opposition. The religious leaders of the time stand in opposition to God himself. And so he tells these two parables and it it's really is just amazing that as he walks through these parables that they, they begin to understand and say, oh, you, you know, you know he, he's talking, we think he's talking about us. Yeah, get the picture. He's made it clear that he's talking about you. That's finally starting to sink in. But the fact is, it doesn't change their hearts. It just incenses them. It angers them. It enrages them. And then they bring up all of these questions. This is where we've been preaching through the text over the last several weeks. And these questions about the resurrection. And these questions about what's going to come. And these questions about paying taxes. And the questions about the law. And and what's the greatest. And over the last couple of weeks, Cody's laid out this love ethic that is overwhelming in the Old Testament. Brought back up in the New Testament. And overwhelms all of Scripture. A love of God and a love of man that we absolutely cannot get around. Matter of fact, it's a demand on our lives. We love God and we love others. And that brings us to the text this morning. Jesus 
is not being asked a question, but he is posing a series of questions to the Pharisees about who they are, about who he is, and about their understanding of the text. Because you see, in chapter 22, when he deals with the Sadducees, about the resurrection, he makes it abundantly clear that they are in error because they simply do not understand the word of God or the power of God. And he's about to demonstrate to the Pharisees that they stand in the same boat. Before we get too excited about that, we might want to see what boat we stand in. Stand with me as we read this text. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions? May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. You may be seated. You see, as we come to this text, Jesus moves from a defensive posture of simply waiting on them to answer, ask him questions to really posing his own question. Because Really, as you walk through these questions, every one of them that has been posed to him to this point has been done in a manner and in a way with hostility, with enmity, with the goal of putting Jesus in a corner, placing him in a trap, tripping him up so that he might say something that puts him at odds with the people so that they might turn on him or something that might put him at odds with the Roman government so that they might turn on him. And in every situation, Jesus' responses have been up to the challenge and there's been nothing that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians or the religious leaders of any kind have been able to do to place him in the box they're trying to get him into. But in this section, the Pharisees were still gathered. You see, they had come, remember, the Sadducees had been quickly dismissed by Jesus' response. Hey, you don't know the word of God, the power of God. This is what reality is in the kingdom to come. The Pharisees had stepped in. A lawyer has asked a question about the law, which was truly a softball question because everyone knew that that was the greatest commandment overall. There's very few that would have challenged that. But Jesus and the way he phrases it and the way he places it to him and places it back in their court overwhelms them with a lack of understanding and ability to put that law into place. 
And these guys were good at putting laws into place. Matter of fact, as we move forward into chapter 23 next week, we're going to see these guys were talented at putting the law into place. But they were still gathered together. So we need to see we're a couple of days from the triumphal entry. We're a couple of days to the cross. Right in the middle of the Passion Week. And Jesus has been slowly revealing from the beginning of his ministry up until this point. And in the end, he is going to stand face to face with Caiaphas and proclaim proudly who he is. But he's been slowly revealing it up to this point. Scholars call this the, the messianic secret. That as you read through Matthew, that who Jesus is as the Messiah is, is kind of hidden. And he tells people not to tell who he is. And he walks through and he kind of holds that back. And he doesn't just outright claim to be the Messiah at any point. And then when we get to Matthew 16 and Peter's confession or Mark 8 and Peter's confession, in the middle of those books approximately, we see a shift. And Jesus has been revealed to his disciples who he is. And the secret begins to be lifted. And if you can imagine, the veil of their eyes begins to be lifted a little bit at a time and a little bit more and a little bit more. And as he teaches and as he proclaims and as he walks with them, he opens up their eyes just a little bit at a time so they can see the truth of who he is. And right in the middle of that, the Pharisees are gathered together. And Jesus asked them a question. And I said it a while ago, this is not just to end the debate. This is going to end the debate. This is going to be the mic drop of all mic drops. He's going to lay it out. He's going to ask the question and they're silenced never to return again to ask him a question in public. They will question him, but it will be at some sham of a trial where they will come to a decision based upon their own hearts and their own desires and their own rejection of who he is. But Jesus asked them a question and he asked them a question as we get to this in verse 42, we're going to see that Jesus' question is one that everybody in the audience would have known and understood and given most likely the exact same response to his question. And we see him say, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So before we move forward, let me ask you a couple of questions. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? What do you think about salvation? How is one saved? Now, I don't want you to raise your hands. I don't want you to jump up and down. I don't want you to tell me out loud. But this is where I've got two camps of you at the moment. The first question most of you have said, he's the son of God. Hold that thought in your mind. And to the second question, most of you have said, faith. Hold that thought in your mind. Because Jesus poses the question, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. That's an accurate statement about the Messiah. 
It's an accurate statement about the Christ. As a matter of fact, turn back probably a couple of pages in your Bible with me to chapter 21. And as Jesus is cleansing the temple after the triumphal entry, he comes in and he he sees this, chapter 21, verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. Notice, not evil deeds, not wicked things. The wonderful things that he did. And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. That rings familiar from our text today and their response. If you go back up a few verses into chapter 21, verse 9, and the crowds went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus had come into Jerusalem with the proclamation being made that he is the son of David. Do you get what their understanding of Jesus is? Their understanding of Jesus is that Jesus is the Messiah. That's their, that is what they're proclaiming. As a matter of fact, back in the temple segment, the chief priests and the Pharisees were indignant and said to him, do you hear what they're saying? Hey, don't, don't you hear, man? They're calling you the Messiah. You can't let them do that. That's blasphemy. You're clearly not the Messiah because you're not what we expect of the Messiah. To that point, Jesus even defends what is being said have you never read? Again, Jesus pointing back to their lack of understanding and knowledge of the word of God. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. That's out of Psalm chapter 8, verse 2. The son of David... You know, this was, this is like walking into our kindergarten Sunday school class, standing up and saying, who died on the cross? Every boy and girl is going to raise their hand. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. This was a question that Jesus understood exactly how they were going to respond. There was no anticipation about their answer. It was just waiting on the answer to be given as he knew it would have been given. You can go so far as to say this was almost cliche. And if you go back a couple of weeks and listen to Cody's sermon, you can understand why we don't need to get our theology and our understanding of the word of God or God himself from cliches. It's not because they're completely inadequate, not because they're completely inaccurate, but they are completely inadequate. They're not complete. They don't tell the full picture of who God is. Just as this response is not wrong, it is inadequate. It does not give a full picture of who the Messiah really is. 
and he is about to open up their minds. And he's going to do so not just to win the debate, but to make them begin to think and process through who he is and what he's doing and what's really going on. You see, Jesus is ultimately trying to lead them quietly to the point where they're standing on the edge and right over the edge is an understanding and an acknowledgement in their heart and in their mind that he is the Messiah. And he leads them right up to the edge and they're so dead set against it. They're so tied to their past. They're so tied to their traditions and their misgivings and their misunderstandings and their rejections and the greed and the longing for power and the desire to fulfill their own needs that they refuse to step off the edge and admit that Jesus is who he claims to be. Because you see in verse 43, he says to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? You see, he's brought them to this point. And now he's taking them back to the, to the Psalms and he goes specifically back into Psalm 110, which ultimately will become the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. It's a significant passage. So I want you to turn with me to Psalm 110. Yes, part of it's right here in our text, but I want you to see a little bit more because as we walk through this, we need to understand that Jesus is not only showing them the truth of who he is, he's teaching them interpretive principles about the word of God. He's teaching them how to start where they need to start. It's our first core value. Start with the word. You know, that's not just a pretty saying that we like that makes us feel good amongst our friends and makes us sound good to those people who love church and love Jesus. It's what we attempt to live out in our lives. It's what we attempt to live out as we lead this church, as we lead our families and as we follow after Christ with everything that we have, it's why we offer the classes that we offer. It's why we use the curriculum that we use. It's why we preach what we preach the way that we preach it. It's why we do what we do because we believe the word of God is prescriptive and descriptive. But more than that, it is sufficient and authoritative for our lives and the church. So we must submit ourselves to the word. And Jesus takes them back to the word. And he reminds them that it is in the spirit of God that David writes, not just as a beautiful poet, but as a prophet who is proclaiming the words that the spirit of God has placed within him to write down on the page that will be continued on in perpetuity as the holy word of God, God as its author, man as his scribe. Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament is what gives us a proper view and understanding of the New Testament and our modern Christianity today. And this is why we can't unhitch our Christianity from our Old Testament 
and what God had to say then because Jesus refused to do such a thing. Jesus said, hey, do you not know what David said? In Psalm 110, he didn't have the verses in the chapter there, just by the way, all right? Jesus said, do you not know what David said in the Psalm? Because this says it's a Psalm of David and Jesus believed that that was an accurate statement about this Psalm. And he also believed that the way to interpret this psalm was that it was a messianic psalm, that it made proclamation and prophecy of who the Messiah was going to be. So he's teaching us a little something. He's teaching them a little something. He said, you got that Bible right there. You got that scripture. You got the holy word of God. Believe it. Believe it. It's true and it's trustworthy. Listen to what it says about me. Listen to what it says about the promises. Know that God is holding them fast. And as we look at this, we can understand that as it also points forward, we can believe and hold on to the promises of God for the future and for now and for then. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see, David is calling his heir Lord. The Lord Yahweh says to the Lord Adonai, which if you go back to Psalm 8, you understand that Adonai and Lord are interchanged. They're the same God. Adonai is God. Yahweh is God. They're one God. It's Father and Son. The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, well, if the Messiah... It's the son of David, yet David calls him Lord. That's not the way monarchy works. David's not calling anybody Lord unless there's something unique about who he is. Says to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If you go through this chapter, that's exactly what he, does. he talks about. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your mouth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments among the nations filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Jesus, you, you come right here and you sit at my right hand and you wait while I put all of your enemies under your feet and subject them to you and make them bow down to you. Philippians 2 reminds us that that is exactly what will happen in the end, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and it will bring glory to God the Father. But as we see this text in light of what's going on, we see that Jesus is running headlong to the cross and he's not making any stops along the way. It's clear where he's going. It's clear where he's been. And there's nothing that's going to stop him. The only problem is that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the religious leaders of the day misunderstood who the Messiah was going to be and what he was going to do. They thought that he was going to be an earthly king like David. They thought that the Messiah was just going to be a man. <coughs> and that he was going to reign and rule in the power of David. 
that he was going to overwhelm his enemies. You see, they wanted so badly to be out, uh, out from under the Roman government that their focus was not on the things of God, but their focus was on their situation and what was going on. So they had a misunderstanding. They believed that the Messiah was one who was going to be coming as a man, a king, even as we move forward. Looking at Barabbas, who was Barabbas? Barabbas is one who led an insurrection. Why would we release Barabbas instead of Jesus? Because he's the one who's going to physically lead the people to overthrow the Roman government. It goes back to their understanding of who and what the Messiah was. He asked them another question. You see, they've done pretty good so far. They, they got his question right. Not sufficient, but it's right. Because you see, as he, he begins to lay out, there's something unique about the Messiah. There's something unique about this individual that the Old Testament speaks so much about. The things that are prophesied and proclaimed about him cannot be fulfilled by some mere king that is only a man even if that king is of the line of David. And you gotta go back to David, understand your Old Testament, see who David was. He was in their eyes the greatest king of all time. He is the one who vanquished their foes. He is the one who drove the enemies out. He is the one who set up the most glorious, prosperous time in the history of Israel. I can understand why they would want a king like David. Because it means prosperity for them. It means health for them. It means comfort for them. It means peace for them. It means an opportunity to once again stand in the center stage of the world's affairs and say we are important. That is not what God had in mind. He was sending a suffering servant. And he is calling his children to follow after the suffering servant in likeness and in line with the suffering servant. David calls him Lord. How in the world can he be his son? There's got to be something unique about the Messiah. And there is something unique about the Messiah. You see, Jesus, this has already been revealed. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then he gets to the heart of the question, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Not the son of David. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah, the son of God. And Jesus answered and reminded him that that had been given to him only by God the Father. And then in Romans chapter 1, we see this picture complete when Paul opens the book of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets of Holy Scripture concerning his son, who was descended from David. Oh. 
according to the flesh and was declared the son of God because he is God made flesh in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we receive grace and apostleship to bring the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ man aren't you glad there's something unique about Jesus and that he is truly and fully God and he is truly and fully man and he meets the requirements of the Messiah perfectly according to God's word because it is through that that we have the hope of our salvation we have the hope of who we might be one day the hope of resurrection and in verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. You see, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the chief priests and all of the religious leaders had been, as we said earlier, been trying to box Jesus in, to put him in a trap, to pin him in a corner, to make him stand out against, in opposition to, those who might be able to do something against him. Because remember, they wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the people. They didn't have the authority under the Roman government to do what they wanted to do, so they needed to make him an enemy of Caesar or an enemy of the people to accomplish their will and their desire to destroy him but they could not do it and in this statement no one was able to answer him a word you see they understood just as an earlier question when he asked them about John the Baptist they understood if, if they give this answer well this is this is going to be bad and if we give this answer mm, this is going to be bad and we're just going to keep our mouths shut and say, we don't know. And in this one, they understood that if they gave the answer that was accurate and adequate according to the entirety of Scripture, they would have to fall in line with what Jesus has been saying all along. And they were not going to do that from their own hardness of their hearts and from the blindness that they had been given, this was not going to happen because if they had done that, the cross doesn't happen. If they had done that, forgiveness of sin doesn't happen. If they had done that, the burial and resurrection never happened. If they had done that, our hope of eternity, our hope of resurrection in God does not happen because Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, would have never died and defeated sin. He would have never been risen from the grave and defeated and overcome death. This had to happen. And they were more than happy to do so. They rejected the truth of who Jesus was. But don't think for a minute that they didn't understand. Turn over with me just a little bit to Matthew chapter 26 verse 63. Matthew 
Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 63, it says, but Jesus remained silent. Remember, he has been taken prisoner. He has been brought before the chief priest and the council. So he's standing before Caiaphas. He's standing before the council in a sham of a trial. This is not an appropriate trial at all. It shouldn't have been taking place in the manner in the way in which it was being handled. But Jesus remained silent to all their questioning and to all their accusations. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God, not the son of David. Tell us, are you the Christ, the son of God? You see, Caiaphas and the high priests and the religious leaders, they understood that there was something unique about the Messiah. So when they're standing there questioning Jesus because of all of the things that he has proclaimed, all of the things that he has shown them, all of the ways in which he has quietly led them to a full understanding of who he is claiming to be, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus stands boldly before the high priest, understanding the consequences for his statement. Because whether the trial was a sham, whether it should not have happened, whether it was being done, handled appropriately, once he answers the question in the affirmative, which he does, you have said so, there's nothing to do but to slaughter him for blasphemy and proclaiming himself to be the very God of the universe which he has done multiple times in their presence and now they have their opportunity. He says, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds. Because you see, that's what our text says. Our text says, Jesus, the Lord, the Messiah is going to be called up by God the Father. That's the ascension. That's Matthew 28. That's right after he gives the great commission which reminds him to teach him the word. He, he's called up and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And we see this picture further on in scripture when Stephen is being stoned as a martyr with an, as an innocent man only having done the wrong of proclaiming who Jesus was against those who have slaughtered him. He looks into heaven and he sees Jesus not seated but standing waiting on him to come in. What a beautiful picture that is. And John on the Isle of Patmos as he looks up into glory, he sees the splendor of Jesus in the glory of God and it knocks him to his knees. There's no other response when we stand and see Christ but to fall down and to worship and to proclaim his glory. And this is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of his day refused to do and unfortunately it is what men and women still refuse to do today. And it breaks my heart. As they come to hear the truth of God's word and have laid out before them who Jesus is and what he has done for them and the salvation and the glory and the opportunity that he presents to them. And they refuse. 
and they reject. And they walk away for so many of a variety of reasons. So as we see this text, I want you to understand first and foremost, this text is revealing to us who Jesus is. That's what his purpose in asking the questions to the Pharisees was. It wasn't to end the debate, it does. But his purpose here was to point them lovingly toward who he is as God and their only hope. So I ask you this morning, who's Jesus to you? What misgivings or misunderstanding might you have about Jesus? You know, as Cody was doing this baptism this morning, he referred to Jesus being Lord. Lord and Lord and Lord, because that's who Jesus demands to be. You know, we look back at the scriptures and we have Jesus in a manger and that's great and he's pretty and he's sweet and man, he, he's just something I can pick up and squeeze and hold and I love the whole babies too, but that's who we keep Jesus and I was reminded this week when I was in Mexico, as I looked around at all the statues and all the, the things, that, that that's where a lot of them hold Jesus to be. He's still in Mary's arms, not able to do anything for anybody, needing someone to help him. And then the other situation which we see him placed in is he's still hanging on the cross. And there he is, arms spread, nailed to the cross, unable to get himself down unwilling to get himself down. A dying sacrifice, but not a risen king. Or even some, one of the most worshipped that I have seen is the body of Jesus laying bloodied and bruised, beaten and torn. And he's still in the grave. Not a triumphant king. Not a resurrected savior. Not someone who can bring hope of forgiveness and hope of life and hope of now into my existence. Someone who desperately needs to be cared for and really just ultimately needs my help. See, who is Jesus to you? Is Jesus your friend, your buddy, your good guy that you hang out with? You see, that's where our, our lack of deep theology has brought the modern church today. We consider Jesus to be our friend and our companion, but we fail to acknowledge him as the sovereign Lord of the universe who is worthy of nothing less than our praise. Yeah, he's your friend. He's called you to life. But when you stand before your best buddy, you better bow down in reverence and proclaim who he really is. So you must answer that question this morning. And I would tell you that in this morning when we give a time of response in our invitation, if you've never come to know Jesus as Lord of your life, if you've proclaimed him as something other than that, if you've said, I'm a Christian and you've yet to follow after him, you're not a Christian. If you're claiming salvation and you're not allowing Jesus to be Lord of your life, you're claiming something in vain. If you're claiming a hope for eternity without the submission and surrender of yourself before an almighty God, 
I'm not sure what your eternity looks like. So respond when we give our invitation. The other thing this text does is believer, he calls you to a proper understanding of God's word. See, I asked the questions earlier. Who's the, who's the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, he's the Christ. He's the son of God, absolutely. But don't forget, he's also the son of David. He is man and God come together. He is unique. I asked the question, what do you think about salvation? How must one be saved? Faith. James tells us that faith without works is dead and it's useless. What we've been trying to get you to understand over the last few weeks and again today, this text brings out sharply is that our inadequate, unthoughtful, cliche answers are not helping anyone anywhere, including ourselves. And we're longing for you to see this text for what it's saying to you, believer. You need to be in the word of God. You need to know it and you need to understand it and you need to move it from your head to your heart and start taking action on it. Because Jesus makes demands of our lives. The gospel makes demands of our lives. The gospel demands to be obeyed. Jesus demands to be loved. Jesus demands our surrender to him. There are so many false preachers out there, people, that if you don't know your word, I promise you they will lead you astray. They're doing it all over the world. All over the world. People who stand there refusing to admit and acknowledge the deity of Christ. Don't be mistaken. Don't, don't be misled that these people are good people who just have a little lack of understanding. No, they don't know who God is. And that means they're leading people straight to hell. So today I want you to answer the questions. Who is Jesus to me? And do I truly, truly accept the sufficiency and the authority of his word? And by doing so, I'm studying it, living it, and acting on what it says. Let's pray.